Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello then, welcome to another episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Can't believe it's been two weeks already, but I'm glad you guys are still listening and downloading and subscribing and reviewing. It's all been absolutely awesome so far, so really appreciate everybody who has gotten involved with the podcast over the previous months. This week's episode is another really interesting one, as we are joined by award-winning author, ghostwriter, music and sports journalist, whose work has appeared in Q Magazine, 442 and Kerrang! among many others. It is none other than Matt Allen, who has co-authored several Sunday Times bestsellers, including Faster Than Lightning with Yosemite Bolt, which was an international bestseller, and the 2019 number one book Battle Scars with former Special Forces soldier Jason Fox. We are thrilled to have Matt on this episode of the podcast. In fact, we got Matt on two episodes of the podcast, which is awesome. And over the course of the two episodes, we're doing deep dives into the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, what it might mean for a potential return from Jar Jar Binks, and how we both feel that Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher's performances in The Last Jedi were probably some of their best performances over the course of the whole Skywalker saga. So without further ado, here is the next episode of the Jedi Order podcast. So first first thing, I mean, I know we're going to chat about a lot of different things today, and we're, we're going to chat a lot about the future of Star Wars in many different aspects. But firstly, like, take me back to your kind of first experience with it because I, I remember you saying you were about you were about three or four when the first a new hope came out in 77 yeah so i saw i saw the original trilogy when it came out and i think i was about four or five when my dad took me to see star wars i think you know in in the 70s and early 80s films hung around on the cinema for a bit longer than they do now and they kind of tended to to bring them back round every couple of months. So I saw Star Wars, but then my my first real kind of vivid memory of, of going to see Star Wars in the cinema would be when Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, and they had it as a double bill, Star Wars and Empire at the Leicester Square Odeon, and my dad took me. And by which point I was absolutely hooked by the films. I mean, we, me and my two cousins, Nick and Dan, we sort of grew up together and we got the original line of, of Star Wars figures. I remember the first one I got was in a Christmas cracker. And from then on, we just had it all. You know, every Christmas, every birthday, it was all Star Wars. We, I think probably between us, we had nearly everything. I mean, I even had the original Death Star playset, which is... So rare now. I don't think it's as it's as rare as the original Boba Fett with the the kind of rocket launcher on his back, but it was highly sought after, and it probably goes for stupid amounts of money now. If there's one in a box, 
but it, and it's and it's testament to how people remember their friends and family through Star Wars. I, through another mate, was reconnecting with my old neighbour last year, and one of the first things he said about me was, "You had the original Death Star. You had that Death Star toy that everyone wanted because it was so rare." But yeah, so from then on, you know, I was just hooked. I think something that it was either John Favreau or Dave Filoni said on the, the gallery, that brilliant series that is the making of The Mandalorian, if, if no one's seen that yet, if anyone's not seen that yet, um, is that Star Wars really teaches you about, it's modern mythology that teaches you about the rights and wrongs of life. It gives you kind of an insight into, into family and hope and self-belief but it also just, it's, it's just the way that it kind of connects you with other people and it shapes your imagination going forward. So I wonder, I'm always interested psychologically, you know, how Star Wars has shaped how I write or think about stories when I tell them, you know, kind of as a ghostwriter, I'm always telling stories through someone else's eyes. And some of it, you know, I've worked with a few special forces people and they're a kind of, scenes of action as you can imagine and i just wonder how much of the star wars experience and the storytelling shapes what we all do now kind of as when we're in a creative job how much behind the scenes it's it's doing something it's it's so different uh, one thing you touched on there especially the toys firstly like it's so different compared to other franchises that it really was maybe the first major especially films because films never did that pairing did they no, when it was back no. in the 70s 80s it wasn't toy line film it was no. always toy line associated with either animated cartoon series or tv shows and i think that's one it's such a key factor that allowed star wars to become what it was over especially over that was six year period of the original trilogy having um all those toys and everything in between and i've said this before like because i was born in the 80s so i missed the original trilogy when they came out but for me i discovered star wars through the toys from hand-me-downs yeah and i was given hand-me-downs of all like the original obviously the kenner lines um so i i'm so fortunate to have i had like a millennium falcon and um some of the rebel ships and snow speeders and stuff but i didn't know even when first getting them what these even were to me they were just well it's just a spaceship right yeah, <laughs> and yeah. i'm just gonna play with it like that and it was only really i mean i can i've got vague memories of maybe seeing star wars on television yeah. in the 90s but it was only really when they started doing the special editions back in the cinema and then of course that was followed by the fanfare of the prequels when that came yeah. back and star wars was like back in the mainstream again but yeah it's so much I mean, there was so much content, wasn't there? There was a, there was almost like a, there was a void of content after Return of the Jedi, but then it seemed to really pick up again late eighties into the nineties. Yeah. I mean, they they talk about it as legend now, but the books, the comic series, and everything like that, it just kind of it expanded. And like you were saying as well, there's so much depth and really focuses on human emotions human interactions within the characters that you're right it probably echoes in people's lives more than they think sometimes especially Absolutely. when they're heavily involved yeah i mean there's so many references to references to star wars in film literature you know wherever you look music 
Um, I mean, I think it's Ash, isn't it? 1977, doesn't it? Doesn't their first album? Well, A, it's called 1977, and B, I think the album starts with that kind of scorching scream of a TIE fighter going over the Death Star in from A New Hope. Um, but yeah, it creeps up in everything, and I think that that era, the sort of 80s and 90s, was a real sort of late 80s and and 90s was a real desert for Star Wars. And I was at university when the rumours of the prequels first started kicking about. And that was really interesting because the whole concept of of Star Wars and how it was set up as being episode four of it being a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and everything feeling so lived in, set it apart from every science fiction film I'd seen at that point because everything felt futuristic. It was in, it was ahead. It was something that was going on, you know, in a thousand years from now on a planet that we, you know, millions of light years away. Whereas Star Wars had that kind of King Arthur and the round table vibe about it because it was, it was such a long time ago and there were stories before what we were seeing. So when there were those key bits of dialogue that have been, picked apart and where a line will become a film or at least a, a plot line in a book or and who knows where they're going to go with the, the new tv series but when there was mentions of things like the clone wars and anakin skywalker there was a whole mythology that had gone on before and everyone i remember at school everyone kind of talking about so what's episode one what's episode two and what's episode three and so when the prequels came around i mean i was at university when they they came out and everyone was just a little bit underwhelmed just because there was no way they could live up to the stories that we'd invented in our head as kids. And it was a really tough, it must have been very tough as a filmmaker to set these stories up knowing that everyone's already imagined them before you've even told them. Yeah. I mean, that's that's one of the one of the things you touch on there, which I think is something which is so Star Wars and it did really do it. I feel for the first time is that lived in effect. Yeah, that, that's something which really came across. And so many people talk about it because obviously science fiction, every sit before then or around then and after then, it was all very much they were trying to push it so far into the future always thinking that everything had to have this like clinical clean finish yeah almost you know something that's not seen today so they it was always you know these really shiny whites <laughs> or yeah. know, everything was always that clean finish and obviously you have that in elements of star wars on particular ships and so forth but yeah the lived in aspect which really did make you pull those connections between like King Arthur and the Round Table and all that because there, there was like myths but they were happening and everything they referred to were things that happened but it's like not many people always knew about it no. if you weren't in the Empire and you weren't a part of the Rebellion because of the vastness of the galaxies it was all like these stories as people say that you see it in the um, the new sequel trilogy about how Luke Skywalker isn't a myth he's actually real and all this type of stuff that was that was something so brilliant and like revolutionary I think that Lucas created there which was obviously I mean it's so hard to follow on isn't it because it's embedded in people's memories especially when they were kids 
yeah, and it, well, I mean, it's interesting with Star Wars because it, obviously the the famous history of George Lucas is that he was actually trying to get the rights of Flash Gordon before he got to Star Wars. And I would love to have seen his take on that because the, the, the Flash Gordon that came afterwards was so bombastic and camp and flamboyant and colourful and that huge Queen soundtrack. And I'd be very interested to see what the, the treatment George Lucas had put forward for it. But I think the lived-in thing was so clever because when you look at at the films, it just it just gave it a weird air of authenticity, which is quite hard to pull off when you've got a bloke dressed as a giant ant or something in the cantina. Some of, some of those <laughs> creatures in the, in the cantina, when you know, I, I think Lucasfilm made the right choice by not really jazzing them up for the for the special editions, but. When you look at that cantina, the fact that it's all beaten up and dark and dingy and there's sand everywhere, it almost distracts you from the menagerie of, of plastic and sort of Muppet-style fur going on in the background. <laughs> but it, it just works so brilliantly. I know, it's kind of like in some ways that you've walked into where all the disregarded Muppets that didn't make it onto the Muppet show are living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They look so cool. And as a kid seeing that it just blew my mind and those toys came out and i remember the kind of the, the range especially the I mean, I've, i so i always call it star wars because you know that's how we knew it we didn't know it as a new hope when it first came out and then as i grew older and became kind of obsessed with the films but that first line of, of the start of star wars toys from a new hope i mean the alien the kind of the menagerie of of cantina aliens and they essentially just made a, a range of figures out of a pub in space and it was hammerhead there was snaggletooth of course greedo was in there there was the gonk droid um i'm trying to think who else is, in, is there anyone else in? they're the kind of the main ones that stick out from the cantina scene and they were just the, that of that early range they were probably my my favorite of the toys so it's really cool to see those kind of characters turn up now in in the mandalorian for example where i think um dave filoni was saying that it was as if the toy box they were playing with it's as if their older brother took all the cool toys and left them with the slightly less popular ones and they decided to make a tv show out of those but they had an old boba fett figure and they just kind of painted it silver so it looked quite cool and really that's that's what the show is that is what the show is to a certain extent and it's so i mean i urge anybody who is either a fan of well a fan of filmmaking uh but either if you're a fan of the mandalorian as well to watch that gallery series because it's it's so fascinating but with the same kind of excitement as we were the actual show because first of all that star wars has got a very rich history of great making of documentaries way back to the first film um and and this tv series i thought well is it going to be kind of just a very technical industrial light and magic here's how the volume works but it had a real heart and soul to it i mean the first couple of episodes the first episode i think is the directors and it was great hearing their kind of um ex their star wars experience and how it informed their writing or creativity or vision and then in the second 
episode, Dave Filoni gives this kind of monologue in what he thinks the duel of fate in A Phantom Menace and that fight between Darth Maul and Obi-Wan and, and the impact that it had on Anakin Skywalker and how it ties into the whole series, particularly the first six films. And there's people around him like Taika Waititi, um, Deborah Chow, and they, John Favreau, and they're all just hanging off his every word. It's a very passionate kind of explanation of what he's learned from Lucas about what these films mean. So the, as a making of, it's got a real spirit, a real soul to it. That moment you talk about there with what Dave Filoni um, spoke about, I I think that was that's one of the best description or in-depth thought processes into how Star Wars connects together and how the stories are kind of laid out. I almost feel after hearing that that Dave Filoni needs to come out before every Star Wars film and just give us his like um, little paragraph monologue at the beginning and people will be like oh wow and then you'll go into the movie and start to watch it because I I don't think there is anybody that's probably understands other than obviously Lucas when he wrote it but seems to understand the ethos and everything behind it as much as Filoni does No, Uh, which is I mean we see as he's evolved really as a writer yeah. from the Clone Wars and going into, I mean, it's perfectly timed. I feel Dave Filoni's step into live action, yeah, because he's really he talks about how he was he felt so out of his depth when he first met Lucas, uh, when he was even considered to work at Lucasfilm. He didn't think it was a thing that was actually genuine, but the the learning curve he must have gone on. And kind of the freedom must have been to a certain extent in creating the Clone Wars over that time, but also adapting Lucas's kind of vision to certain stories, certain characters. I feel that that's teamed up so perfectly in time with the Mandalorian series and how he's able to come aboard that with Favreau. Well, I feel that we're obviously going to talk about TV today, and I've I feel I was very re- really relieved when I knew that he was going to be behind a lot of the Mandalorian and very excited to see what he was going to do with the first episode because because directing the pilot is that's a, a lot of pressure you know on on anyone let alone somebody who's never directed live action before and really that show just comes flying out of the traps doesn't it from the very first scene where he's in that He's in that bar picking up his first bounty, just and and wrecking shop in there. It doesn't really slow down. It's a it's a it's a really good first episode. But I think it's more importantly, I think both him and John Favreau understand the importance of figuring out the story first of all. And I feel I'm not going to bash the sequels because I have thoroughly enjoyed them. But there's always an underwhelming, there's kind of just this, in the background, there's always a sense of this could have been so much better if this story had been thought out in advance. It was quite clear that the decision was made. J.J. Abrahams, you kick this thing off. Ryan Johnson, you're going to come in. 
for the second episode and Colin Trevorrow, you're going to take on the third. And it quite quickly fell apart. And there were so many kind of subtle course corrections that really impacted on the overall story, I think. But with The Mandalorian, they've obviously sat down and gone, right, we're going to figure this thing out from start to finish. They probably, I mean, given that Series 3 is now in pre-production, they probably, it wouldn't surprise me if Jon Favreau had already written Season 2 and 3 shortly after writing Season 1. And it just feels like there's a continuity to it and there's a real understanding of what Star Wars is and the themes within it. I'm not saying that sequel trilogy didn't have that but i just feel that the story feels so well-rounded i mean even when you go back to because episodes one to three are just brilliant and seven and eight this those five episodes are so good and there's a i remember watching them as they came out because i saw them in the states last year and it was great to have to wait a week to see the next one and there was a moment in the middle of the season I think it's episodes four, it's four, five, and six, where he meets Cara Dune, where he goes to Tatooine, and then there's like the prison breakout episode, where I was thinking, this feels a bit like Adventure of the Week. It had that kind of, we're just going to chuck the Mandalorian into a, a different situation and see what happens to him. But then when you rewatch the season, you, I found that, I, in those three episodes, there's a real kind of character building um, emphasis. You learn more about him, kind of where he's come from, how he reacts to certain things. And they, the bond is building between him and, and baby Yoda or the child or the green kid, whatever you're going to call him, you know. It's like a really interesting um, three-part character development thing going on. So... It's been it's been so well done. I mean, I can't really. I think out of all the new Star Wars, The Mandalorian and Rogue One are the two um, creations that have excited me the most. I think what what you touched on there as well, and I think this is where what Star Wars really benefits from. And I feel this is why the Clone Wars ended up being as successful as it was, and this is why the Mandalorian ends up being as successful as it is and i'm i'm the same as you i did i thoroughly enjoyed the sequel trilogy um and yes some story lines aren't as strong or some characters aren't as maybe delved into as much as they should have been but there was one thing definitely a theme there that you feel if they actually if they probably went we probably would have got slightly better films and went to jj abrams at the beginning and said look you're going to kick this off but you're also going to write all three films yep. Yeah. And then there's going to be two of the directors that come in, but you're going to write them, you're going to be on the set. So in the same way that Lucas played a role in the original trilogy when he took a step back from the director's chair for the, yeah. the next two installments, um, it's, that, it's that same thing. And we see it, don't we, on the gallery, uh, Mandalorian, that all these other directors come in and they're given their freedom, but they have Filoni and Favreau to bounce off at all times on set. Yeah. Yeah, they're present and like you say Favreau's already written the story and then the story's probably he's written the whole story and it's gone to Filoni and he's made the change, the changes and adjustments where needed where it benefits the story and probably like more in depth character traits and things like that and then it makes its way to the directors and they can have their input but they said 
they talk about it, don't they, in the gallery and how it was so they had so much more information than they usually do ever shooting other TV that they've done before. Yeah. They were given so much beforehand that they kind of felt like they were going into this so fully equipped and with such a team behind them. And I think, unfortunately for... And it's kind of interesting because I feel because of Filoni's relationship with Lucas, I feel Kennedy, Kathleen Kennedy, tried to install some of that relationship between Lucas and the new wave of directors. Yeah. Uh, I feel they didn't take to it because we know Lucas was invited by Kennedy to every set of the, supposedly, of the sequel trilogy. And I feel what you had there, instead of people obviously respected him for obviously what he created, but they all had their own vision and they were like, that's great, but we're going to do this. And um, whereas in the Filoni relationship, you get Lucas coming in and it's like, well, brilliant. Well, tell us what you think there or what you do there. And Favreau's follows the exact same beat as Filoni. So it's a, you've got this person that you can refer to and you probably the sequel trilogy would have benefited that if people allowed Lucas to come in a bit more. And it's not so much, he doesn't have to rewrite scripts. It's just no. having, it's always that reference point. That's, that's all it is. Yeah, I think that the the sequel trilogy, what stands the, the sequel trilogy and The Mandalorian apart is The Mandalorian has confidence in the storytelling. It doesn't, it's not relying on anyone or anything to prop it up. Where I've, I think in the, the sequels, there was a tendency to rely on the older characters as a kind of a support system for when the story was flagging a little bit. You know, particularly the last, the final episode, which was, okay, we've got to finish this thing. Ryan's killed off Snow, so what are we going to do? Shall we just bring back the Emperor? I mean, I've, I would love to have been in that meeting to, to, to hear that conversation as to how that decision was arrived at, because it just felt a bit like, well, we've run out of, options really let's bring let's bring the the main bad guy from the original trilogy back in you know he was he was ever present all the way i suppose in, in a way it has a sense of continuity because he was the malevolent force in the in the first in the prequel trilogy but it just felt a bit lazy yeah and, and I, I think if it had been if, if someone like kevin feige had been overseeing it and it and it was a Marvel property, say, the old characters would have kind of been there to bring back that sense of familiar familiarity in the first instalment and then let the new characters and the new villains run it run out for the rest of it. But I felt like they just thought we're gonna have to soft reboot a new hope in the first in the first sequel, and then we'll just keep relying on on the old guys to keep everyone happy until the end. Whereas in, in Mandalorian, although it, the world is very familiar, there are stormtroopers, there are imperial figures, you've got the kind of background characters that you would have seen on Tatooine or wherever. The actual the, the protagonists are all original yeah very very much so one thing i will say just before because i know we obviously dive a lot more into the tv now um but 
I've very much, even sometimes, obviously, people, some people were not happy with, obviously, like you say, the strength of the story beats throughout the sequel trilogy. One thing that I do love about the sequel trilogy is it offered some of the some of the greatest visual um like um scenes and moments that i've ever seen in any star wars scene the throne scene scene is just so beautiful to look at in in whatever way you look at it and kylo ren is a phenomenal character that i I mean you only wish you had more time with him because i I think it's obviously it's kylo ren but adam driver just brings this intensity to the role which is a second to none but we do get so many characters that i love and i mean now we're in this fortunate world aren't we so you know moving on to talking about the disney plus world and what they're able to create obviously they have some which we're talking about in a minute a a lineup of productions already confirmed that they're working on but if you if you could handpick like a couple for instance for me from the sequel trilogy characters that you would love to have their own series i would love for there to be a series with finn and um with characters supporting characters like uh poe would come into it and rose on just missions around the galaxies on kind of wiping out the rest of the first order because we always know it's you can you can take out in the main battle of where the first order or where the empire is at its at its biggest moment but it doesn't mean that that news has filtered to all the other galaxies and planets that would be something i would love to explore because i really do love finn's character and how he has that force sensitiveness to him but not to the extent of a jedi but i i just find that fascinating and would love to see like a uh you know like a group of them just go round from planet to planet on separate missions that would be for me an absolute win kind of an a-team in space yeah (laughs) exactly yeah yeah (laughs) kick back against evil whenever they're needed yeah you could really tie that in with yeah poe finn ray but you could have someone like zori bliss who was such a cool character in in the last film um chewy of course you know it's it's it would be a great. I mean, we're, I don't think, the, sadly, the TV shows are, are going to go there. No. Um, but you know, or, or maybe even a kind of a, a sort of a pre-sequel series with Kylo, Kylo Ren and the Knights of Ren, and really kind of explaining that story because, again, that was set up so well in the first film, and then almost forgotten in the second. They turned up for ten minutes. These kind of medieval um, warriors that were covered in. I mean, there's a great scene. There's, there's two great scenes in the Rise of Skywalker, where every time their ship is flying, it's like belching out really thick black smoke. It's just, it's like some old banger from the, from the 1920s. But then when they're walking through um, Kylo's Star Destroyer, they're just leaving mud, muddy footprints in this very kind of sterile clean environment and i just thought they were they were like like darth maul or, or how it first appeared darth maul was going to be in phantom menace um criminally underused they looked amazing they, they had a kind of a mysterious backstory that could have been explored more but just just really underused i mean what do we know about the knights of ren really i mean 
you got to go into the comics and to find out what what they're actually all about. But I think visually they look so good they they should have been used more in the in the new trilogy. Now, funnily enough, I I I feel the stuff something like the Knights of Ren. Which, yeah, getting Adam Driver to commit to a full series, I think, wouldn't be possible. But something like a Knights of Ren limited series, I think, would be possible. Yeah. Because all you would need, really, is Driver to commit maybe to a day of shooting for, like, hologram messages, almost. Giving them assignments and things to do, which you could clip to every now and again. And that would that would all that's all he would need to do because we never got into the characters of the Knights of Ren. No. You could so easily do then a ten part series where maybe it's one or two missions that are covered over the course of that ten part series yeah. of just the Knights of Ren going to these far aspects of the galaxy, uh, doing whatever they do best. Um, but yeah, I mean they're so interesting characters. That's something that. Uh, a whole sequel trilogy written by JJ probably would have benefited from um, having the Knights of Ren feature. You would probably have got them in the Last Jedi and in the Rise of Skywalker. And as as was said, JJ wanted Palpatine in the first film, so you probably would have got him at least in the second film and the third film, which would tie together um, a bit better in terms of character development and stuff like that. But gosh, a Knights of Ren series i feel is something they should oh, explore yeah. i mean i'm very excited about what disney plus is doing i mean the Ma- mandalorian was great because it felt familiar but it was all brand new characters and i mean just the cast was so interesting carl weathers is brilliant in that you know he's really over the top his delivery is fantastic he's funny but he's got that blend of kind of, he's funny, but you wouldn't trust him. And he, and he really sets up what's going on in the world with, with um, the guild and how lawless it is after the fall of the empire. And, and you learn through him that, you know, or, or him and, and the Mandalorian, that the new kind of, um, the new political system is a bit of a joke in the galaxy. Um, by bringing those actors in and bringing those directors in in particular with the Mandalorian, it just shows a real ambition and imagination to do things that are a little bit different. I mean, I was so pleased to hear that Deborah Chow's going to be directing the Kenobi show, whatever that is. It's rumoured to be called The Pilgrim, isn't it? Mm. Um, it's directing that from start to finish because I think she did possibly my the two best episodes of the season, which was episode three with that great kind of Mandalorian gunfire at the end. And then episode seven. Um, yeah, I'm really excited where they're going with it. And it just shows, I mean, I know we're, we're leaning on old characters with Kenobi and then the Cassian Andor series, but they're kind of characters that we, that there's room really, there really is a lot of room to explore. I just this think is, it's very yeah, interesting. Carry on, Matt. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say, it just feels as if they're, and I think they're going to be, they're going to take some time to regroup about the, the films. I mean, whether they're going to, there's been all sorts of directors attached and screenwriters attached that have then 
faded away or announced they're not actually doing a Star Wars movie. Benioff and Wise being the the main two, I think when they, when they were announced, everyone naturally assumed that they were going to be doing the Knights of the Old Republic, going going way back and doing a Game of Thrones style treatment to Star Wars, and they drifted away. And there's the Ryan Johnson trilogy that's supposed to, supposedly going to happen. Taika Waititi's been attached to a film, um, but they're going to, I think, regroup and have a think about how they make them. Whether they're going to be standalones new trilogies with new characters whether they're going to have a kevin feige style overarching grand plan where they'd have several films coming out that all tie in to one bigger picture as with like the the, the marvel stuff maybe they're even considering bringing kevin feige in which has been rumored um but i think with the tv shows they've got freedom to really play around and and take risks and i think the mandalorian did that a bit in that yeah it was all familiar and it and it set up set itself up in a world that we knew but because there wasn't a skywalker or even a jedi in it yet i think we're going to get one in season two um and really all we the closest we got to kind of anything familiar was yes there was a baby Yoda, but really it was the dark saber, which, you know, that's the, that was the only real kind of, um, familiar character. And that was a, that's a lightsaber or a dark saber. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is something I'm so, uh, excited about, especially as there, I mean, I think Bo-Katan has been cast. Yes. It's Katie Sackhoff, isn't it? From who that, also, that. also voiced her from the clone wars, which I think is yeah. a great, but, which is absolutely really lucky that Katie actually kind of embodies the character herself anyway, just yeah. uh, in her style of acting and her look. So that's worked out perfectly. And there's obviously, I mean, I think there's more rumours about The Mandalorian Season 2 than any other future Star Wars movie. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it just shows how popular it is and how excited people are about it. I mean, let's go through who... So who we've got so far is Katie Sackhoff, um, Ahsoka Tano is coming back. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Oliphant is playing, rumored to be playing, or at least to be acting in the old Boba Fett armor. Um, there was somebody else who I've forgotten. Cole Weathers is, is directing an episode. I mean, it just it just sounds really exciting. Um, and then there's there's kind of rumors. Actually, let me say this for when we get on to Kenobi, because there's a, there's a very interesting rumour surrounding that. But yeah, it just feels very exciting, this, the, t- the, the TV shows going forward. And it was just nice to... The Mandalorian, we watched it kind of Saturday morning cartoon club style, because we were watching it in the States, so we watch it it come out on a Friday, we'd wait till Saturday morning, coffee, and watch the show then. It was a really fun way of... of absorbing star wars you know at home because for me star wars films my dad took me as a kid and now i take my dad and it's a very very kind of familial experience you know he's nowhere near as as enthusiastic about the films as i am in fact when we watched um force awakens we went through our usual we always go watch it in leicester square 
And then we always go to Chinatown for dinner afterwards. And we were sitting there and I said to him, so what did you think, Dad? And he said, well, yeah, it was good. Really enjoyed it. But who was that bloke on the cliff at the end? I said, Dad, that was Luke Skywalker. That was literally the point of the whole film. <laughs> I don't get excited about the new movies as I am. Well, he did enjoy Rogue One, though. Um, but watching, so me and my girlfriend, were watching, we watch it week by week. And it's just a, it's a very nice and different way to to get your Star Wars fix. Yeah, yeah, it very, very much is. I love the, well, this is what is going to be so um, kind of so pivotal in Star Wars moving forward is that Disney Plus is going to allow them this avenue of high high value production because obviously you know the Mandalorian's not a cheap production but then as we see um the technology that they use on the Mandalorian to kind of transport these people to other worlds is I can't remember what it's actually referred to as um you know those big panels that they use um, the volume that's it which is just fascinating uh and the fact that that moves around as a perspective of where the character is and what they're doing just kind of mind-boggling and i mean they could probably do at least two more episodes on that and i would still still trying to wrap my head around the ins and outs of it i love the way that ludwig goranson has made a music video for the mandalorian theme tune he's obviously in that world because he works with donald glover and he's a hip-hop producer and he's done some great stuff but he's released a music video for the for the mandalorian and it's all filmed in the volume he just looks so cool with his big recorder and his weird kind of apex twin style production gadgetry going on there's all wires coming out these flashing machines that he's making music on i mean he he could fit he feels like a star wars character in himself Uh, i'm sure also i'm sure he'll probably make an appearance at some point (laughs) <laughs> um like the directors did as those x-wing pilots yeah that was um, i enjoyed that yeah me too i thought it was a really really nice touch and it's obviously in tune with what star wars does i mean we had you know daniel craig in the force of wakens and simon Pegg getting his role i think kevin smith doing a walk-on and all that type of stuff it's what gareth, Star- gareth edwards is in two isn't he he is, he is. He's in Rogue, Rogue One, One and, and Last Jedi. Yeah. Yeah, lucky bugger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Mark Hamill's children are also in The Last Jedi, aren't oh, they? I think they're the in the trenches as rebel right. soldiers. So it's it's very much like bring your family along to watch it and bring your family along to bring in it. Talking uh, so. of which, you say that the, the um, Mandalorian is, has huge production values, which it does. But what I was... What I, found really interesting really really nice was when they were short on stormtroopers i would have thought that lucasfilm would have an army of stormtrooper outfits just ready to go Mm. turns out for that those last two episodes they were 30 or 40 stormtroopers short and so they called in the 501st and for those guys it must have been brilliant they've finally they've got film-worn stormtrooper outfits which means their value is incredible. Yeah, and also they didn't tell them 
that no. they're going to shoot a series or anything. They would just said, we just need you for an event, a Lucasfilm. As those as those stormtroopers of the 501st were saying, this is something that happens often. They they get brought into Lucasfilm for uh, like events for um, people who work there or for charity events all the time. So being called by Lucasfilm was like, not out of the normal but then to obviously all get together on a bus and turn up and then suddenly you're on a set with a tie fighter sitting there and all the cast around and it just i can't even imagine what that must have felt like but yes and now obviously all of their stuff is screen worn yeah it looks so cool as well i mean the one thing about the mandalorian is it it definitely cherry picked from the right corners of the galaxy the bounty hunters look like the bounty hunters guild that bar looked, it was, it was so Star Wars. You know, everyone, everyone at the bar, all these weird aliens, a mixture of like humanoid characters and things that look like weird alien hybrids. The stormtroopers that look very beaten up. I forget the name of that droid, the one that comes out of the gate at Jabba, Jabba's palace. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, my God. I love this droid. I absolutely it's I've talked about this multiple times now this is one of my favorite droids it's the gatekeeper droid and it's got some sort of weird like TK numbers numbers yeah uh it's just to this day I was saying because I was asking someone like what kind of your favorite moments from Star Wars that aren't some of the big moments you know just little things that might make you like and every single time that droid poking its head out to um c-3po and just saying whatever he says like the and c-3po yeah. was like goodness gracious me like every, <laughs> every single time i laugh and i can't even imagine the amount of times i've seen it but it never fails to impress me no. so when it happened in the mandalorian i mean that was it i was in <laughs> They really have cherry picked from kind of the. I mean, the fact that it's bounty hunters as well, and there's the remnants of the empire, and the storm tru- stormtroopers are covered in dust and crap. And when you go to Tatooine, there's all these stormtrooper helmets on spikes. I mean, it just it just looked visually, it looked amazing, and I'm just you know I'm very excited about where they go next. And also, what's great is both of the series that they've currently announced, the Kenobi series and the Cassian Andor series, really lend themselves to that similar backdrop, don't they? Because obviously, we're going to see Kenobi um, on Tatooine, and a lot we're going to see a lot more than Tatooine than we ever have before, which I'm really excited to see. And I kind of would love it if that. I know the Cantina gets has been used in the Mandalorian, but it would be great if that's where kenobi goes almost to meet with contacts that maybe give him information about what's going on in other parts of the galaxy so we could have it as almost like a maybe that place where he first meets han and chewbacca that could be almost the table that he goes in and sits at there's so many good things that can come from the kenobi series and i'm so excited about it yeah i think you know particularly with deborah chow running the show but also, I mean, I think when when you think about Obi-Wan Kenobi and what he was doing between uh, Revenge of the Sith and, and A New Hope, there's a tendency just to think, well, there's, a, there's an old man on the desert, not, well, a relatively young man in the desert at that point, living in his weird grey apartment in the, in the desert. We know he's referred to as a crazy old man by Uncle Owen. But there's... As I, as I was saying earlier, 
how various lines get picked out of the film and can be reinterpreted to kickstart another story. There is that line in Return of the Jedi, which is Obi-Wan once thought as you do, Darth Vader to Luke. And people have sort of speculated, is this going to be the jumping off point for Kenobi in that was there a moment where they met again? And so not only do you have the fact that Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to be operating in the looking after or looking out for Luke from a distance. Um, Vader is obviously going to, at some point, sense that maybe he's still around. And it, it, so there's a real potential for him to show up in this show at some point. Um, and it, I know it's grey, it's kind of a grey area, and people argue about the meaning, not only of that line, but also the one in The New Hope. Um, a presence I've not felt since, and the kind of the master learner line. But I feel that if Lucasfilm wanted to really bring people to this show, or Disney at least, Disney Plus, then I think Vader would be a good antagonist in this. Or at least Inquisitors. And then of course there's the famous Rebels scene where Darth Maul tracks down Kenobi in the desert. I, won't, I don't think you've caught up on this yet, so I won't say what happened. But it's, an, it's a very cinematic moment. It, it, and whether Baloney will, will allow them to recreate that scene for live action. But there's definitely a lot going on. I mean, there's rumours that, that it's called the Pilgrim, or rumoured to be called the Pilgrim. He's going to go to Jeddah. It's one, it's one plot that they're, they're rumoured um to be exploring and there's also a rumor that jar jar binks is going to show up and that armored best has been cast which is interesting because obviously armored best has quite famously had some real issues surrounding his um appearance in the prequels and struggled with depression um massively as a result but there's an interesting scene. Have you have you read the Chuck Wendig Aftermath books? No, I haven't. No. So Aftermath is the trilogy that kind of what happens post Return of the Jedi, and it kind of leads into how the First Order is formed. And in these books, there's these kind of great mini chapters that that happen every four or five chapters in the main narrative, and there'll be like a little story featuring like a bounty hunter or some other character. But Jar Jar Binks turns up in one, and forget forget what happens. He's sitting. I remember. I know he's sitting by a fountain, and someone approaches him and talks to him and says, "Oh, you're the guy that's responsible for this in the Senate," and blah blah blah. And it's almost like a cathartic moment for Jar Jar Binks, where he was like, "I was basically says I was the village idiot, and I was kind of this played for a fool, and and I was naive, and blah blah blah." And I wonder if there's kind of a, re and a redemption of Jar Jar Binks as a kind of... Because he was a figure of fun, wasn't he? Whenever, whenever people poke fun at the prequels, they would mention that character. And I wonder if, if there is, if these rumours are true, there's a redemptive story, not just for the character, but for the, the kind of the icon of, of what Jar Jar Binks was. I would, I would very much uh, love to see that especially as someone who my my love for star wars was you know 
started from the prequels. Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm, my mum took me to see A New Hope in the cinema when it was re-released, I think, in 97 to coincide with the anniversary. Uh, 20th, I think, at that point. And, uh, and I obviously absolutely loved it. But the prequels obviously took that excitement to a, way, a whole new level because... Yeah. Going to see A New Hope in the cinema, whilst it was great and whilst it was amazing to see it on the big screen, it's like I'm just going to see it with my mum. It's not the whole world's talking about it. And then I'm going home and then, and then that that's kind of it. And I can reference uh, other original uh, trilogy films and watch them on TV as many times as I wanted to. But with the prequels, it was the whole world. It was this Star Wars hype again, which obviously hadn't been around since the late 70s. So Jar Jar was like a, a massive part. And, you know, I completely understand people didn't um, get along with that character. But then, obviously, uh, I, I still, to this day, so many people miss the point on that character. Because he, w- he was for kids. That's what the character yeah there for and as lucas reiterates so many times star wars is for 12 year olds and also you have to you have to take so many factors into it going into uh the prequels lucas and lucasfilm and everyone already know now how big not just the films are but the toys are yeah and they are going into it in a different mindset than they are the original trilogy. Whilst the story and everything creative about it is obviously still so important, there's a whole nother leg to the financial aspect of Star Wars, which is story, but toys and characters, and what toys and characters are kids going to get excited about, which I feel is where Jar Jar comes from. That's the ethos he comes from. And... Yes, Ahmed Best has been through one hell of a journey, and I really respect him. He's such um, he's such a talented man. Yeah, um, he's such an interesting man as well, and I'm I'm really happy that he has the series now. Um, is it Jedi Temple? I think it's called. Oh, where happened. so he has a series now with Lucasfilm called Jedi yes. Temple, which is a kids show. It's a kids. It's like best part is uh, like a kid's crystal maze right oh no i have heard about this yeah yeah and supposedly it's i haven't seen it because it i don't think it is on disney plus in the uk at the moment because i think it's actually on maybe network or youtube uh in the us but he gets to play he's obviously a character he gets to play a jedi in it and the kids come on the show and they have to perform loads of jedi tasks in order to you know win this tv show and the the kind of response that he's been getting to that is just been amazing. Yeah. And now everybody's like, "Can we have your Jedi in a live action series?" <laughs> because he looks he looks so cool. He's like distinguished with this little bit of grey like goatee beard as well. And you're like, man, you look like almost the guy who taught you know people like Mace Windu and Qui Gon Jinn how to be a Jedi. <laughs> I think. The rumour is that Ahmed Best has been cast and everyone's assumed that it's going to be Jar Jar Binks, but maybe it's not. So maybe it isn't. Maybe it's this character that he's yeah. portraying on the Jedi Temple. Either way, in some way, I would love to see Jar Jar make an appearance in the Kenobi series yeah. and almost have his redemption yeah. because you would be seeing him his character in a different light due to the fact of the tone of the Kenobi series. Yeah, in itself, and 
But we, you know, we're so it's such a good period of time, isn't it? Between Return of the Jedi and a Phantom Menace. Uh, no, sorry, the other way around. Revenge of the Sith and a New Hope. There's so much, um, so many characters. Darth Vader would be a phenomenal inclusion in that series. The because, Cartel. Uh, yeah. He's on Tatooine. Jabba's Palace is still rocking. So there's nothing for to stop them from from bringing him in. I think in one of the Star Wars comics, there's a kind of a, a subplot. I had a period of just of getting the Marvel app and just reading Star Wars comics for fun on long haul flights and that kind of thing. There's actually some really good stuff in there. I'm not a comic person normally, but I thought, you know, I'll just dig in and see what's going on here. And there were some really good stories. I mean, there was there's one where Luke goes back to Tatooine and goes to Obi-Wan's flat and basically finds his diary and starts reading through it. And you, yeah. and you get these backstories of what he was doing on Tatooine and some of the scrapes that he got into. And there's a story with the Tusken Raiders. There's a story where he has to help help people out from the Hutt cartel. So it's definitely something, it's something they've explored previously. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of scope for, for what could be going on. I think also in those comics, there's a story of Boba going to hunt him down. Yes, there is. Yeah. I think um, that, that well, in, in that series, that and um, the Darth Vader series, it's, it's Boba Fett who finds out that it's Luke Skywalker who blew up the Death Star. So there's an epi- there's a uh, an issue where Luke and Vader come face to face. Vader recognizes the lightsaber, and then he afterwards he sends off Boba Fett to find out who this kid is. And he comes back and he goes, "I don't know much about who he is, but his name's Skywalker." And it's a it's a really nice little backstory as to how Vader found out that he, it was the kid. The kid that broke the Death Star is his son. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's also um, uh, one other... Because I I did the exact same as you when they Marvel started doing the run of the Star Wars comics again. Um, I downloaded the app, Marvel and Unlimited, and just I've just been kind of reading them on and off since. And uh, But there, I, there's reference also Dr. Aphra. Yeah. If you've ever seen those comic series, I believe in one of those she there's a big kind of confrontation not between her i forget this character's name but it's like almost like a dark version of chewbacca yeah i think that's it krishak or something like that has a confrontation not only with kenobi but with um lars owen lars as well yeah so there's so I think there's so many things but gosh to see like a and it would be perfect to do it to see the coming together of Darth Maul and Kenobi in live action again. And Vader. Uh, Vader. Brilliant. I mean, he's so brilliant in those. Like I say, the prequels weren't my favorite, but Ewan McGregor was consistently brilliant throughout. And if he doesn't say hello there at some point, everyone's going to be disappointed. Yeah. (laughs) But I think he, he really does have the gravitas to, to hold this thing down. Because the show could be quite a bit like the Mandalorian. There's nothing to stop him from going off world and doing bits and pieces and having like an an adventure of the week theme that the Mandalorian had in the middle. 
but have like an overarching story as well. And he would he'd be brilliant at holding that down. And then you could have spin off characters. I mean, I think Doctor Aphra is is worthy of a a, a series of her own. Mm. We haven't don't know that character. She's kind of like a a rogue Indiana Jones kind of. She's a former scientist or, or daughter of a scientist, isn't she? And she kind of yes, goes yes. around getting artifacts, and she comes into she sort of gets sucked into Vader's orbit. And he has these two murder droids ensuring that she does his willing. And she gets sent off to different places to do various jobs. And then, and then she eventually breaks free. But that kind of Indiana Jones in space in the Star Wars world, A, a that's very Lucas, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the ultimate Lucas combination, Indiana Jones and Star Wars. But I just think there's a real scope for bringing character out of the comics putting them into a TV show and giving them a life of their own, having a new character in a familiar world like the Mandalorian has done and just having these really great adventures. I think also this is something that maybe I, I believe they kind of, yes, everybody's been asking for Ewan McGregor to return as Kenobi for, for a long time, but I feel that the whole reason you get a Cassian Andor series is because of the time frame it sits in. And it kind of coincides with the Kenobi series to a certain extent of time frame. Yeah. So that it gives um, Disney Plus this scope to have the same side characters almost at different points in their life appear in both series. Because that's that's yeah. the great thing we can explore with Cassie and Andor is all those people that we've talked about, how we would love for them to feature in Kenobi can also feature in his series as well. Yeah. yeah. We could have an episode where he's hunted by Vader or hunted yeah. by Boba Fett or even uh, Dr. Aphra could be under Vader's control at that particular time. Yeah. You know, she's with those uh, murder droids who I, who I just, like, find so <laughs> dark. <laughs> yeah, well, it's basically 3PO and R2-D2, isn't it? It's, there's Triple Zero and I forget what the other one's called. Um, yeah, I've... Is it BT or something? Oh, yeah. It's Triple Zero and B2, I think. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Triple Zero's lines are so dark. They're pretty fitting, <laughs> aren't they? they yeah. Those two would be great in either Cassian Andor or, or Kenobi. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting, really. I mean, I think given where we are um, with movie theatres not being open just yet and who knows how long for... And I think perhaps Disney being a little bruised, I mean, not financially, but in terms of the intellectual property of, of Star Wars, being a bit bruised by some of the criticism, I think their, their attentions are definitely going to be focused on TV for the near future. Yeah, I think they will. But um, as we spoke about, the, the films will always hold a place, I think, in, in the majority yeah. of people's hearts because that's how they that's how they get the general public involved, isn't it, in the whole fanfare. Yeah. And I, I, I feel they've got a real opportunity now because they're all, they've got this fresh canvas because they don't have to tie it to the original trilogy anymore. They can replicate what Disney Plus are doing, but on a bigger scale, yeah. in that we can now go into these worlds within the Star Wars um, universe, which have traits and certain characters that give us the 
Star Wars tick or seal of approval. But stuff like I'm completely uh, happy with Ryan Johnson still making a trilogy because yeah. what you get from there is you'll get from Ryan Johnson is a fantastic filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, Looper for me, one of the best sci fi's of the past two decades. I thought Knives Out was great as well. Uh, Knives Out, again, like the guy knows how to make a film and he has a great style and he writes really well. And to give him the opportunity of writing across a trilogy of films so we get his story from beginning to end is going to lean to that continuity that everyone seems to be after more. Yeah. So that is something that really excites me. And also I feel there from reports we keep hearing and and the involvement, especially in The Mandalorian, it very much seems that Lucas is becoming kind of a bit more heavily involved again as on a yeah. consultant standpoint, which is kind of really interesting because it's kind of that thing. Whilst you've got him around... Why not ask him where he thought these characters were going or where his initial ideas? Because it can only help. Cool. I mean, I think with with Lucas, he like I say, he got a bit of a bad rap with the with the prequels. But I mean, he invented this stuff. Yeah. I mean, he didn't invent the mythology of the hero's journey, and he took his cues from the westerns and the samurai films. We know, but this new mythology that he set up, he invented. So. To ignore that resource is utterly wasteful. I find it really sad that he wasn't involved more heavily in the sequels. I think he's public. I know Mark Hamill has been very vociferous about disagreeing with Ryan Johnson's choice of, of Luke's story arc. I'm not sure whether Lucas is a is kind of a, against it. I think I don't. I didn't have any problems with Luke being grizzled and cynical and having turned his back on, on the Jedi and the Force and as a, as a angle, I just think, I know, he, I know he did kind of force project himself into the Battle of Krayt and took on Kylo Ren, but I think we were, as an audience, were denied the chance of seeing like peak Luke Skywalker, you know, really taking down the enemy in a way that we haven't really seen him do. Since the since the um, the original trilogy, and even then, when you think about it, the the kind of duels with Darth Vader aside, there was never a moment where he kind of pulled a ship down from the sky or all those things that you you heard about in the comics and and the expanded universe stuff. I feel like we were kind of denied that, and I'd rather have had thirty minutes of of some kind of reflective because obviously Ryan Johnson brought back the brought in the idea of the time skip in in uh, The Last Jedi why couldn't we have gone back a bit further and seen a bit of of Luke in his prime I'd rather that than the kind of weird Harry Potter mini story that went on in the in the middle a canto bite um but yeah, I'm not going to not. I'm not going to not the last Jedi because there was, like I say, there's some visually and there's some of my favourite Star Wars stuff in it. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's handling such a character as Luke Skywalker is such a responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. And I feel, you know, you gosh, I mean, you could take it in so many different ways, and it's. I guess it's that hard um, 
kind of balance that you're kind of fighting against yourself, I guess, in writing these films and because you have all these new characters as well which have to be really established but you have to pay kind of homage to the older characters at the same time one thing i've always said is just sometimes some stories are too big to tell in two hours (laughs) yeah yeah so it's something that we're so fortunate to live in a time now that where we get the Disney Plus series where we can really dive into multiple different characters over the course of five to ten hours. Um, but yeah, it's it's something, I mean, visually, once again, the scene of Luke and um, Kylo Ren on, is it Crate? On Crate, I think, yeah. Oh, just with all the... Um, I know it's different versions of Atats in the background and stuff, but the whole sun setting and those two facing off against yeah. each other is just, and the the red that what the salt creates on the floor and stuff like that, just visually some of the just. It was that was brilliant. I mean, brilliant. I, I, the twin suns at the end. I mean, I mm. I was there was something in my eye for sure. And, that, yeah. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the sunlight getting in your eye, was it, Matt? <laughs> I, and I, I thought Mark Hamill was brilliant in that film. He was, you know, despite, despite being unhappy, because th- there are times in Return of the Jedi where you can sense Harrison Ford dialing it in. But in the Last Jedi, even though Mark Hamill was so opposed to how Luke Skywalker's life had turned out, he's he is amazing in it, and he's a he's a real joy to listen to when he talks about the the whole story of Star Wars, whether it's the making of all the characters, where it's going, where it's been, what it's done for pop culture or cinema and movie making in general. And if, if anyone listening to this hasn't seen it, go to the, it's the Russo Brothers Pizza Film School. Isn't pizza it? Film School, yeah. And it's these, the Russo Brothers basically every couple of weeks get a director in that they admire and they pick apart a film that they love so this one's a two-parter with mark hamill and the empire strikes back which the unsurprisingly the the uh russo brothers credit for giving them the confidence to do infinity war and the way it kind of ended on such a dark note but mark hamill's fantastic throughout you know he he really he's got a love for the franchise and the character and just some of the detail he gives on on the making of empire i mean you know these days i mean we we've kind of almost proven his point it's impossible to keep the behind the scenes goings on of a tv show or a film quiet we know already who's going to be in the mandalorian season two and who they're playing and who's showing up likewise kenobi but this whole concept of of Darth Vader being Luke's father. I know David Prowse had basically admitted it in an interview at some point, but when the script came out, the line was not I am your father. It's like, no, Obi-Wan killed your father. Yeah. And Lucas said, or was it, I forget whether it was, I forget who said it, but anyway, maybe, but anyway, they basically said, well, George knows, I know, and now you know, and George and me aren't going to say anything. So, Mark, if this comes out, we know it's come from you. Yeah. <laughs> so freaked out by kind of potential leaks. 
but it's a, the interview is is brilliant because he, like I say, he really goes step by step on how the film was made, how he was cast originally, um, and what he thinks of Luke Skywalker and the making of Empire. It's brilliant. If you've got like a spare hour, definitely worth worth um, watching. And and it's if you're interested in kind of script writing or writing or fiction writing, it's they really do break down the the story structure, the three, the classic three-part structure of a film. Um, the Russo brothers have got this very interesting kind of technique of on page eleven they like to do this, and on page eighteen the the, the character is thrown out of the status quo and blah blah blah. They've all these interesting kind of theories and techniques they've obviously taken from other directors, but have also kind of twisted into their own. So yeah, really, really worth watching. Oh yeah, a hundred percent, especially like so many things. For obviously, Mark Hamill's once again, he's got such a great recollection of it all happening. I know this is obviously reiterated for the amount of times he's spoken about it, but um, yeah, how he, you know, he goes, he even goes through back to like you were saying how he was cast and when he got the first script and he was just sending it to everybody he possibly knew to <laughs> check it was, check it was, check it was <laughs> it's like yeah i just called it and then i said my friend sheila called i gave it to her and then friend, <laughs> i gave it to him and then when it came to empires like, i couldn't send it to anyone it was so weird all my friends were like oh why can't we have the script <laughs> he sent it to all us last time um but his stories and his enthusiasm about the character is just so well driven um like you mentioned there his performance in the last jedi his performance and Carrie Fisher's performance in The Last Jedi for, yeah. for me is their best performances across the whole Skywalker saga that they've been involved in. I think they both absolutely burned the house down with their performances. Yeah. And I really wish, especially Fisher, would have got some recognition because I thought it was brilliant. But yes, gosh, even if you're a film fan, or if you're interested in ever creating any form of film or writing, that particular episode, the Russo brothers and how they break down their masterclass of how they put together a script and the story beats and where things are supposed to go awry and where they're supposed to come back into uh, into the main storyline and where the character's supposed to go. So interesting. Yeah. So interesting. And they talk about it's it's I kind of wish my mind was in tuned in the way theirs was in how they interpret films and its structure and how characters are going in and out of the storyline because it, it's it's truly is fascinating and it it really shows how and why someone like Kevin Feige turned to those two guys especially to kind of bring together this 20 to 24 film arc of Marvel in order to get what we got in Infinity War and Endgame. For me, Endgame, probably one of the best comic book movies ever made. It's incredible. It's it's truly incredible. There's so many moving parts, and you don't feel that any part isn't given the right amount of time that it should be given, or wasn't given enough in order to add to the story it all adds so perfectly well it's something i think spills over as well into the mandalorian when yeah. people are talking about time length you had some episodes were like 29 minutes some were 40 some were 30 odd and it's i think it's all boils down to that feloni and favreau when they look at it they don't want to waste any time on screen every minute they're using is to tell fundamental parts of this story yeah. So they're not making it longer than it needs to be, and they're not making it shorter than it needs to be. They're just making it what it needs to be in order to tell the story. 
But this is this is the reality of the streaming service. Rules go out the window. Yeah. You know, because you haven't got to rely on ads every kind of 10 minutes. In the same way that when you write a book, you can have a chapter that's three pages long and the next one's 25. You don't need, not every chapter in a book has to be 10 pages. So why would you hem yourself into that box creatively in a TV show? I think the politician, I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, does the same thing. There's some episodes that are 45 minutes long and some that are as short as 20 minutes. So if the story doesn't require another 25 minutes or it involves you breaking up a natural chapter in the story into something else, I don't see the point of doing it. I think with Bavro, he has such a key understanding of filmmaking, but more importantly, storytelling. The way he shaped The Mandalorian just feels very natural. Mm. You know, the, 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 the kind of the three-part sort of almost mini-film, which is the the Mandalorian getting the job, getting the asset, giving it to the client, going off to and you know to to Tatooine, getting the, getting the the asset back, going back to Tatooine, and then returning to Navarro. Um, I always wonder if John Favreau was a James Addiction fan right here, Navarro, <laughs> having that kind of and then sort of getting off again, getting off with. The, the Mandalorians bailing him out, you know, all that kind of stuff going on. Um, it just feels very natural. There's no, there's no, we've got to force this character in at this point. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. It's, it was just a really, it's a really great, it's a, so my, the way I see, I explain like the, the prequels and the sequels in my head is the sequels are, I'd say, an okay story, beautifully presented. They look amazing. Mm. The prequels are a great story. I think, not not poorly presented, but just it's just a bit much. You know, there's a lot of CGI and a lot of kind of there's a lot going on, and an Attack of the Clones could have been so much better. And you know, it, it's just a bit of a mess. But The Mandalorian is a great story, beautifully told. It just works. Yep. It just works on every level. Even the soundtrack, which is so hard for a Star Wars film, when it's not John Williams. You know, as we saw on Rogue One and then Solo. Yeah, hang on, did so John Williams didn't do Solo, did he? I don't think he, no. No, he didn't. He didn't but do Solo. I'll find out who did. Yeah, def- but definitely Rogue One. The soundtrack was so jarring at first because it wasn't John Williams. But weirdly, The Mandalorian, as soon as you hear that weird psychedelic recorder and that kind of straight, it's got that, it's kind of, it feels kind of, a bit like a samurai, like like that TV show Kung Fu with David Carradine. It, it's got the kind of the, the percussion, that kind of tribal percussion. And yeah, it just it just felt so natural because it hit the right spot between samurai film and western. Yeah. It all Very just Hi guys, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to another episode of Jedi Order Podcast. Please don't forget to like, comment and subscribe and may the force be with you. Um, um.